0: Scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Ecclesiastes 2:17. Uh, so I hated life because it was under the sun, because what was under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and, and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because, some, because sometimes a person who has toiled with the wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night he, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also this also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or can have enjoyment. For the one who pleases for to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and, collect- and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind.
1: Good morning. Audio good, everybody? Hear me? Okay. Um, last week, we uh, examined uh, the topic of worship again in connection with the activity that actually occupies most of our daily lives. If you just looked at your, your, your calendar on your phone or your paper calendar, if you're still using a paper calendar, um, most of what takes up your time, if you're not retired or, you know, eight years old, is work. And even a lot of people I know who are retired uh, work uh, a ton. So we made the point that, you know, if we don't have some kind of theology or biblical view of how work relates to our walk with God, how work relates to worship, that would be really odd at best, and I would say probably uh, tragic would be a better word, because work has a sacred quality. That's what we talked about last week. Um, That's the case, though, if we only for viewing our work as part of a divine calling that God has given us as humans, something He designed into us, this is all from Genesis 1, something He invited us to participate in with Him as part of His larger vision of creation. Right, so biblically, I'm supposed to pursue my work not just from the selfish objective of getting all that I can for me and mine, and then I go to church, and that's my religion. But the two don't really meet very much. No, the view is, I work to bless the world around me. I'm reigning over the world with God, to be a blessing to it. That's the that's more that's closer to a biblical view of work, and I think we could find a lot of different texts that would sustain that point. That was pretty much what we talked about last week. So when we approach work in that way, we see a, a worshipful quality to work. Work and worship are actually inextricably connected if we see work the way that it first appears to us in Genesis and then uh, it, it's taught to us throughout the scriptures. Worship, as we've said in some past lessons, is holistic. It's not about just what you do on Sunday morning or something like that or in religious times the sacred versus secular dichotomy that we often operate from, which is very much woven into the modern West, but very much not medieval or ancient or biblical. Um, worship involves holistic transformation. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? You, you're transformed, being a living sacrifice, that is your service of worship, it says. Includes what we do here, but doesn't isn't limited to that. So we talked about that. So all of life is made holy. Uh, in worship. It's set apart by Christ, it's set apart unto Christ. And so last week we tried to emphasize the holiness of work. Now if we're gonna be realistic and honest, um, we have to also acknowledge a more insidious tendency that is built, built into our careers, built into our jobs, built into work. Because work carries the potential not just for holiness but also for hazard It's potentially hazardous because it can become a kind of idol, a replacement God, if you will, to which we turn for things like personal meaning, personal validation, security, even truth. We take our cues from work and it bleeds over into the rest of life, much more than we probably uh, often appreciate. And today, so this is sort of part two in our lesson on work and worship. If we talked about the holiness of work last week, today we're gonna talk about the hazards of work. So first, work becomes hazardous, not holy, when we look to it for our identity, when we look to it for our personal meaning. Trying to root our identity in the work we do appears very early in the biblical story. Remember those who uh, proposed to build a, a grand tower in the Plain of Shinar, the so-called Tower of Babel, as it becomes known later. Do you remember the purposes for which they went about this grandiose uh, you know, work project? Genesis 11 verse 4 says that they said to themselves, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. There's your motivation for a large swath of why people work. Not everybody. A Whole lot of people aren't working to pay the bills, ultimately. They want to pay the bills. Who doesn't, right? They're really working because they're making a name for themselves. It's about identity. It's about fulfillment. It's about personal meaning and validation and those sorts of things. And um, you could even say, I think in some cases, that we, we're trying to find a, a transcendent meaning in our work. Notice it says they were trying to reach the heavens. I don't think that's a throwaway point. And however literal that is being for these people who are probably building one of those ziggurat towers that were you know all over the ancient Near East, still, we can take a kind of poetic lesson from this that I think is, is truer even than the literal meaning, because it's true all over the place. The problem with literal truth is it's easy to him in and say it only means that. Poetic truth often means that and everything else, kind of anything that it applies to you know, in its logic. And think about how many times what we're really trying to do in our jobs is we're looking for careers, trying to pursue our careers. We're trying to make it heaven. We're trying to attain a kind of heaven, a kind of transcendent, um, a meaning, a fulfillment, an identity that really is limited only to our relationship with God. We may not think of it that way, but what if we're trying to attain a kind of heaven through our, our own work? I would say that's actually very common. I read a piece in the Atlantic magazine a, a, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, by one of their staff writers named Derek Thompson. And the article was called, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. It came out in February of 2019, if you want to Google it later or something. It wasn't really a, an article on, you know, religious studies or something like that. But in it, the author, uh, in this, this you know, idea of religion of workism, he begins the article by observing um, that the famous British economist, John Maynard Keynes, back in the 1930s, uh, had predicted that because of continuing advances in technology in places like Britain and the US, you know, sort of the, the Western developed world, he said, by the 21st century, we're gonna have a 15 hour work week like a five, a five day weekend. Like you get your work done Monday and Tuesday and everything else is, is leisure. And he said the biggest problem for people in the 21st century is, is going to be the challenge of how to use their vast leisure time. Well, here we are. What do you think? We're in the 21st century. We probably have more technology. There's some geek out here who will know the actual specs on this, tell me later. We probably have more technology in this than all the technology of all the industrialized nations in John Maynard Keynes' day, I bet you. But a certain swath of American society, Thompson shows in this Atlantic article, are actually working way more than folks did decades ago. And he, he wondered why, like that's curious. And his answer that he found is that we've turned work into a kind of religion. It's a proxy religion. We're seeking what psychologists would call self-actualization through our work. It's not just to pay bills. Oh, we like to say that. Just got to bring home the bacon. Now you're finding your identity in it. I mean, that's not everybody, but that's a lot of people. That's what he says in here, coming from a completely secular standpoint. Let me quote just a little piece of this article. He says this, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some worship political identities. Yeah, you think? He said that like a year ago. Others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. You don't think work is a religion in America and in much of the West? So. We're talking about trying to find our ultimate fulfillment in work, rooting our identity in our work. Maybe for you, it's the achievements that work affords us. You know, we can point to a CV or a resume or a track record and go, "Look at what—that's me! Look at the things I've accomplished." Maybe it's achievements. You'd do it whether they paid you or not, right? You did it in the fourth grade when you're getting a dollar a week allowance, you know, and a a quarter for a tooth that you lost. I know that's there's been inflation, but something like that—you were you were achieving anyway. That's just, the, the money's just a marker. It's a notch on your belt. For other people, the identity doesn't come from achievement so much, it's the respect of their peers. They're validated by other people. For others, it's a sense of control, right? I've got all these people working for me. I've got this business. I've got this sense of, I'm, you know, we're never really in control, but boy, since Eden, we've been seeking it and telling ourselves lies about being in control. And then when it's exploded, it blows our minds. We actually were never in control. Only the Lord's in control. Whatever the case is, though, if I'm finding my identity or placing my identity in in my work, and believe me, this is a a big problem for me. I'm not preaching at you today. I'm preaching, I'm, I'm with you, right? There's a whole class of this for ministers. There's a whole literature on this. If when you think of you, if what comes to mind when you think of you is your work, look out. If when I think of me, what I think of is my work, look out. Building an identity on anything but Jesus sets us up for a fall. I think it's really interesting, we talked about this here before, that when God sees these people trying to you know, reach heaven through their work, He doesn't just leave them there. He thwarts the project of those people at Babel who are trying to find heaven through the work of their own hands. They're trying to make a name for themselves, Genesis 11 says. But God knew that apart from him, this could never be successful, and he loved him too much to let that stand. So in the very next chapter, a few verses later in chapter 12, in what we call the promise to Abraham, he comes to this man who is going to sort of be a representative for the kind of man, human, that God wants. And he says to them what? Leave your country and your kindred and your father's house and go to the land that I'll show you, and I will make your name great. Says some other things, but I want to zero in on that connection. What God is going to do through Abraham, which of course becomes the scheme of redemption and Jesus ultimately, Galatians 3 makes that point explicitly, right? Jesus is the seed of Abraham that Genesis 12 was talking about. One of the things he's doing is is making our name, making us matter, giving us identity. It doesn't work when we try to build the heaven on our own. So God says, I'm not just going to leave you there. I'm going to make your name great. Talk about! I mean, this just reminds me of what Sean was talking about. Just the grace of God is—you can't put it in words. It's—it's it's almost too good to be true, and—and and we have to keep preaching to ourselves, twenty-four-seven, Monday through, you know, Sunday. What the whole week you got to preach the gospel to yourselves because we—that's not what the world tells us. It's telling us stuff like karma, and tit for tat, and you get what you deserve, and all of that, and we're toast if that's the case. And here is God coming in right when they've got this botched project of identity through their own work and saying, I'm going to give you an identity and it's going to blow your mind. Secondly, work becomes hazardous, not holy, when we trust in it for our security. When we trust in it for our security, our physical well-being. Of course, God designed us to need to work for our daily bread. But our work in and of itself never was the real source of our sustenance. It never was the real source of our security. And so work becomes hazardous to my spiritual health when I I become convinced that it's my work that ultimately meets my needs. When I begin to just give mere lip service to the idea that God's my provider. Yeah, yeah, we all know that. We check that box and move on and we really think we are. And we need to recognize, folks, this ever-present danger that is built into our work. Work is always trying, or Satan through work, is always trying to refocus our trust, make us forget the fundamental fact that we're created beings. And that, by definition, means we have a dependency upon a creator. We are utterly, ultimately, we're utterly dependent upon God. Remember the reminder the Israelites are given as they are moving into the promised land at long last. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And they're moving, they're moving into this fertile promised land, and God is concerned that they will, after a few generations, forget how they got there and start believing the lie, you know, kind of chamber of commerce line that, you, you know, a capitalist sort of everybody gets what he works for, bootstraps, all that, right? And I guess every culture's had that because here it is in Deuteronomy 8. Beware, verse 17. Lest you say in your heart, children of Israel, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. He said, look out for that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So you're smarter than a lot of people. How'd that happen? A lot of DNA or you happen to be put in a family that you didn't pick that really worked with you and neurologically wired you to be smarter, you really back it up, you don't get a lot of credit for that. You get some, you get to work, right? You could have rebelled. Um, But we get a lot of the things we get because we just get them. And he's saying, ultimately, everybody gets everything from God. So don't forget that. He's the one who gives you the power to get wealth that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, work being one of them, your own wherewithal to provide for yourself and your family, being one of them, he says, I solemnly warn you you today that you shall perish. And more than that, if we work long enough, some of us haven't worked long enough to experience this yet, and it varies. Time and chance happens to all, Ecclesiastes says, but if we work long enough, and in enough different environments and projects, with enough different you know, sort of settings and groups of people, many of us, and go through enough economic you know, ups and downs, booms and busts, many of us will experience the thorns and thistles side of work that Genesis tells us about after the fall, Genesis chapter 3. And finally, we'll see that trusting in our work was ludicrous all along because of thorns and thistles. There's an excellent book on work, vocation by Timothy Keller called Every Good Encounter. I want to quote from that in connection with these thorns and thistles. Basically, because sin has warped our work, like sin has warped everything else post-fall, We're gonna face thorns and thistles as it were. He says this, sin affects not only our personal and private life but also our public and social life and in particular work. As Genesis 1 and 2 show, God made us for work. Yet now we learn that work becomes, under sin, quote, painful toil. Verse 17, work is not itself a curse but it now lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. Thorns and thistles, quote unquote, will come up as we seek to grow food. And when we remember that gardening is representative of all kinds of human labor and culture building, this is a statement that all work and human effort will be marked by frustration and lack of fulfillment. Anybody ever experienced that? Part of the curse of work in a fallen world is its frequent fruitlessness. What do we mean when we say work is fruitless? He continues. We mean that in all our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all our goals will be met, thorns, thorns, and thistles all right number three work becomes hazardous rather than holy when we allow it to distort our notions of ourselves in community huh our, our, our role as part of a larger family of people if you will work can distort that there are all kinds of applications to this. I'll just give you a couple. First of all, it applies clearly you know, to our relationship with our, our, our earthly families. Spouse, children, parents, and so on. Siblings. Of course, God expects those with dependents, with loved ones, to work on their behalf. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if we don't provide for those of our household, we're worse than an infidel. We're worse than an unbeliever, an atheist. God's expecting that as a baseline. I'm not trying to belittle, you know, paying the bills or doing the chores or, you know, bringing home the bacon or all those things. He's assuming that. But I think often we stop there. And if I see myself solely or even primarily as someone whose function is to provide material things or handle tasks, things and tasks not develop relationships, well then work can actually be facilitating an abdication of my family responsibilities. Abdication. The very thing you think you're doing for them is keeping you from being the main thing you need to be to them. First Peter 3 7 just as one for instance says that husbands are supposed to live with their wives, dwell with them, exist with them in a way that shows Understanding. Some versions say knowledge. I think that's really interesting. It doesn't appear to be the default path for husbands that they get their wives. Does that come as a shock to any ladies here? You know what I mean? Like we're, we have to, it's not, it's not sort of automatic. You don't happen into that. He says you need to be careful to do this thing, it's a commandment. Exercise care to get to know, you gotta have, how do you get understanding of anything or knowledge? You study, you observe, you pay attention, you listen. And boy, uh, you know, I've got a long way to go in this, but I'm probably not the only one. Ephesians five tells husbands to love their wives sacrificially. Paul puts it this way, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means meeting her needs. All her kinds of needs, there's not just one. Right? It doesn't just mean checking off the chores. Wives are to love their husbands. Older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands and love their children. It needs to be taught. It's a learned behavior. It can be botched. Something else can be standing in for that that isn't real biblical love. And again, how well can we know someone without knowing that person? It's hard to love someone and meet their needs if you don't know them. Parents are to rear their children in the nurture of the Lord, Paul said in Ephesians 6. It's a nurturing process. It's not, let me give you five, li- here's a list of five things, do them or else. Or worse, I'm over here. Uh, I'll, I'll come at night when you're asleep already and, you know, tuck you in. And, I mean, if you do that for long enough, you don't really have a relationship, right? So there's a nurturing that has to happen, and that, that takes work. Um, I mean, when, when Daniel's out softball, uh, well, he's trying to save the world right now, and he's taking, I guarantee you, he could have done some other stuff selfishly yesterday. But, but he loves his children, and he wants to, to nurture them. So it involves choices we make. And I haven't always made the right ones, but, but we're to provide love, affection, support, teaching and guidance, Discipline. All of that is involved in nurture and admonition. And there's just way more to those kinds of things than paying bills and performing tasks. Those aren't nothing. They're just not everything. And couldn't we apply all of these same principles about relationships to our, our connection with those in the church family? Not just our earthly families, but the church family and other communities that we're connected with. We need one another. We need to be together. We need to share one another's joys and sorrows and challenges. Don't let the devil convince you that pulling away is the right thing to do. That's not coming from any passage I've ever read. The Bible talks about us being a body. If your arm's dangling by a thread, do you just go, that's good, it's the arm's choice. Don't you go see somebody? If your own family member doesn't come home to eat for you know 12 straight nights, do you like well, he's 12, he's good? He'll be all right. No, you're you're it's APB time, right? Those are the metaphors the Bible uses for our relationship together, folks. Our life together as a community. Of brothers and sisters in Christ. This harks back to some of the stuff Greg said. Greg Spears said in his Wednesday night devotion, the the study that he and uh, Jake and, and uh, another fellow are doing together. This idea of community that we're, you know, love God, love neighbor. They go together. We, we, God never just made it a vertical individual thing. You won't have Jesus very long without having the body parts of Jesus. We just cannot allow our life together as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ to play second fiddle to work. And we legitimize so many, it's such an easy sell in American culture. American middle class culture, all you gotta say, well, I'm working. It's like a badge of honor to people. We even brag about it. I work so many hours, boy, you're so good. Why don't we put it this way? I neglected so many people in my tight circle. This week, man, I neglected my own family, I neglected church family. It sounds different that way, but that often is mathematically what it amounts to. If we allow work to define us, its culture, its logic, its agenda, its calculus to shape us, then we will gradually allow our responsibilities to our family, both earthly family and church family, to be reshaped before we know it, and it will not be for the good. And the problem in all these scenarios I've mentioned this morning is that we are taking this good thing that God made as a blessing, work is a blessing, he wired it into us, we're going to do it forever with him in eternity, fulfilling, awesome work, we're going to reign with him forever over the new creation. But we take that good thing and make it an ultimate thing, don't we? We make it into an idol, a false source of identity, security, and truth. Let me close with a quote from Paul Tripp's book It's called Awe. You may remember me quoting this back in the first couple of months of uh, this year when when we started focusing on worship, loving the God who first loved us. Here's what he says about this in a chapter on work, actually. He asks this question, Why are so many of us working to the detriment of family and church? Why do so many successful Christians carry around with them marital and parental guilt? He's counseled a lot of people in his life. Why is it so hard for us to keep work in its proper God-designed place? I have spent lots of time with guilt-ridden, absentee mothers and fathers who were driven by success and are now looking back with a huge burden of regret. I have talked with many men who sacrificed their marriages on the altar of success. I have talked with many people who still call themselves Christians but have an occasional Sunday morning relationship with their faith because They worshiped every day at the throne of another God called achievement. And here's the here's the the, the gist not only of this paragraph but of the whole book. Only, only when all AWE have a hick accent. So awe, you know, ah, if you're in Minnesota. Awe of God. Only when awe of God has redefined you as his child. And given you a lasting and secure identity, will you be able to keep something like a natural hunger for success in its proper place? So it always comes back to worship. Everything does. Let, um, the saving let, let the measure of our lives be the saving love of Christ. What's more awesome than the saving love of Christ? Let that be the measure. Let everything flow out of that. Our identity, our sense of security you know, um, our, our responsibilities to the parts of, of the world that Jesus cares about, beginning with my own family, and my own church family. Thanks a lot for your attention today. Um, next week, we'll talk about work one more time, but kind of focus on taking a break from work. We'll talk about Sabbath a little bit, which is very much connected to all this in the scriptures. Thank you.